Welcome to Foundation Christian Church. We're glad that you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit foundationcitrusheights.com. Amen. Amen. We're going to do some Bible teaching time. If you need a copy of God's Word, please put a hand up. We've got volunteers who are handing out Bibles right now. If you do not own a Bible, this is our gift to you. Go ahead and take it home. It is yours. Uh, Everybody who's got a Bible, knows your way around, get over to Matthew chapter 2. I had not looked up the page number, so the first person in a hardback to find Matthew 2, if you'd shout out a page number, I'd appreciate it. Matthew chapter 2. Also, did everybody get sermon notes, a bulletin and sermon notes, who wanted them? Put up a hand if you'd like sermon notes, and we will get those to you as well. Thank you, fellas. You guys are great. Um, I'm proving my um, credentials as a millennial today by preaching off of an iPhone. That is because my laptop rebelled against me. Actually, the way it came across, some of you guys will get this movie reference and some of you won't. The way my laptop treated me, I said, I need a young priest and an old priest. That's what I need right now. Just like a little holy water or something because it, was, it wasn't going to print anything. It wasn't going to obey. It wasn't going to listen. No, it wasn't happening. So today we've got Google Docs and uh, do our best from here. So uh, to... F- Fill you in on where we were at last week, where we started this. Yeah. What? Page 800. A nice round number. Great. So if you're in the hardback, we hand it out. Page 800 is where you're going to find Matthew 2. It was the text that the Velibits read earlier. Um, there's this beautiful, powerful, and kind of heart-wrenching line. Uh, Let earth receive her king. You guys heard that one? Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature seen. Okay. Let earth receive her king is kind of, if you know and love Jesus Christ, and this is our series, our sermon series for Advent, if you love Jesus Christ, there are only two types of Christians as it relates to this phrase. Your heart joins with the author and you yearn for your friends, family, neighbors, maybe the person sitting next to you, to finally see Jesus for who he is, feel loved by him for the first time, respond to his cross, say, yes, Jesus, you died the death that I should have died, you lived the life I should have lived, and you took sin willingly onto yourself to give me righteousness. Like You want that for everybody on earth, because how could you find water in a desert and tell no one? That makes no sense. So if there's any drop of love inside you as a Christian, if there's any spiritual vitality inside you, there is hopefully an emotional response when you sing the words, let earth receive her king. Why did the author write it? There's a burning passion. I want everybody to know Jesus. And what what is this word receive, though? He's already been given. He is the gift for God so loved the world that he gave the Son. He is the ultimate and first and greatest Christmas gift. And the Christian, 1,700 years after Jesus was given to the earth, he's still praying, let earth receive her king. So there are two types of Christians, the ones with angst or the ones that should have angst but don't. Anybody here willing to be honest and say, man, I have been, I've had a a lousy evangelistic life and I was apathetic about it, I didn't even care. My hand's up. 
I've been in places where I was apathetic and did not care. I've had a lousy prayer life, and I didn't even care. I was apathetic about it, right? That's actually the cart before the horse. You're apathetic about prayer, therefore you have a lousy prayer life. You're apathetic about your marriage, therefore your marriage becomes lousy, right? So when, not if, when the Christian heart finds ourselves not burning with a desire for people to meet Jesus, what do we do? Quit? Go home? I'm not going to be a Christian anymore? The Puritans use this phrase, stirring affections for Christ, and the image that they were talking about was when you've got a pot over the fire, and there's veggies in there, and there's taters. What's taters precious? And you, and you, bash, them, you, you mash them, boil them, stick them in a stew. You, you have to go get the wooden spoon down to the bottom of the pot from time to time and stir it up because some of the things were heavier, and they sank to the bottom, and you don't want them to burn against the bottom of the pot. So the Puritans used this image to say, hey, the Christian doesn't just get to be spiritually alive. Uh, I grew up in the 90s where we used the phrase on fire a lot. You are not, there's not a spiritual vitality just because in the Christian life. Anybody give an amen to that? Any more than a, a professional football player gets to play really, really well week after week with no exercise. Right? That's not going to happen. The, the Christian is living this dichotomy where I have the old Greg, the flesh that hates God, that is nailed to Christ's cross, kicking and screaming, and I have the new Greg, the new self, born of the Holy Spirit, who only ever loves and trusts God. And so I am this walking contradiction until the Lord takes me home. Anybody feel that? You're a walking contradiction? Paul has this whole section. <laughs> um, just feeling like, I am the biggest hypocrite on the planet Earth. And the next Christian, nope, nope, it's me. And the next Christian, nope, it's me, trust me. We are in a spot as Christians where we deeply want our friends and neighbors to know that the baby Jesus came to save. Or we're in a spot where we realize, yeah, I, mean, I want that theoretically. I just can't even think of the last time I told somebody about Jesus, right? Those are the, spot, those are the places. And when we find ourselves apathetic, I want to tell you this right now. This is for free, by the way. I'm not even into the sermon yet. When you find yourself apathetic, Satan will whisper in your ear about how terrible a Christian you are and that you should quit or that maybe you're not even saved. Okay? Whereas the scriptures say, the righteous man falls six times and rises seven. Get up! <laughs> Sitting there wallowing in shame and self-pity, that's a self-loathing self. You're still looking at yourself. When, when I slip it down into the water and I'm sinking, I look up at Jesus and I say, Lord, save me. That, that's how we repent. That's how we shake off spiritual cobwebs. We want to get to a place, well, I'm not going to speak for you. I want us all at a place where we cry out and we sing out, let earth receive her king. There is no time, frankly. Life is short, hell is hot, forever is a long time. There is no time for self-pity and wallowing in Christian mistakes. We repent of them and we move on. We gotta move forward because why? Earth needs to receive her king. That's why. That's why. Last week, and we're doing this chronologically, last week we started in Isaiah 9, written almost 800 years before Jesus came. We're in Matthew 2. The next, this Sunday and next Sunday, we're in two texts uh, in the Gospels. And then we're gonna move forward all the way to Revelation. And we're following this thread for, for Advent, 
of, hey, the Messiah, the one who's saving you, washing away sins, he's more than you think he is. If, and, and this is more popular in uh, Christendom. Like if you lived in the South during the 1950s where everybody went to church, this would be even more prevalent where we see cheap grace. Oh, Jesus died to forgive my sins. I like that. I'm not going to sign up for lordship. I'm not going to let him tell me what to do, but I'm totally fine. If I need to pray a prayer and cross myself and go to church at Christmas and Easter and that lets me go to heaven, fine. That form of religion is growing less and less popular in America as we are more and more asking, saying things like, well, aren't, aren't all religions kind of the same anyway? Right, we're going into a totally different philosophical underpinning than what we were dealing with 60 or 70 years ago. But we still do this. We still do it, and so we need to talk about it. When the Bible over and over says that God is king, specifically that Jesus is king of his people, and that he makes big claims, right? If you make a big claim, but you're a raving lunatic on the corner, does the claim have any weight? No, no literally nobody's listening to you. But what if you're king of the universe? We're going to get into free will later. You would think the, the king of the universe would get heard and obeyed on the regular, but he has allowed human beings to rebel. Anybody want to be honest and you say you're kind of upset about that? Why did you, God, why did you let us start war after war and kill each other? Right. We're going to get into that in a little bit. The king of the universe, here's what's critical if we try to celebrate Christmas in a shallow fashion of, oh, the cute baby came, and he's going to wash away my sins one day, but we ignore his claims on our life, we're ignoring the three-and-a-half-year teaching ministry of Jesus before that cross. Does that make sense? He spoke for three-and-a-half years things that we wouldn't want to let go of, like the amount of people today in culture that say, uh, Treat others the way you want to be treated. They have no idea the golden rule comes from the lips of Jesus. They have no idea who they're quoting. That, that, do you think that makes the world better, a command like that one? Are we better off with do unto others as you'd have them do to you? Right? Are we better off when, God, when Jesus makes it harder? He says, man, if you've even been angry with somebody in your heart, you're already guilty of the sin of murder. Like you have no idea how close you are to murder, just giving over your heart to rage. All of the horrible things in the evening news, Jesus was trying to warn, trying to keep us away from all of the dark things that we unleashed in Genesis 3. And it is his teaching ministry, again, Genesis 1, God opened his mouth and created the world, right? Everything. So Jesus, this is the irony, Jesus comes as the second person of the Trinity to open his mouth and create things, namely his church. So when we silence him and we don't want him to have authority, I'm not going to listen to you. I don't want you to do things. We're literally saying, God, I don't want you to make beautiful things in me. We would never say that out loud. We think we always want blessing. We think we always want benefit. But that's exactly what we reject when we reject the authority of our saving king. We don't just have a conquering king. We have a saving king. That's part of the beauty of the gospel. How could somebody with so much authority be laid down on a cross and crucified? If he can call the armies of heaven to stop it, but he doesn't, then maybe, just maybe, he loves us. It is his love and his strength and his authority that go together 
to make him the savior that he is, to make him the king that he is. All right. I put some, um, I realized I was walking through the text and I was saying way too much and making the sermons go long. So I put right there in your notes some textual notes that I wanted to draw your awareness to. I'm not going to talk about them. I'm not going to preach them. If you feel like thinking about them later in the week or opening up Matthew 2 and studying, uh, I just wanted you to be aware of those things. But the actual sermon, first point for you note takers. And we're getting into theological deep waters here. I'm going to hold your hand. We're going to do it. Some of you have thought of this before. Some of you have not thought of it before. But it is mission critical. Love cannot exist without the free choice to reject Jesus as king. Love cannot exist without the free choice to reject Jesus as king. All right, put on your thinking caps if you didn't get a caramel macchiato. Everybody with a Starbucks in your hand, you're ready to go. So I know you're firing on all cylinders. Love is a word that gets used a lot in culture, but it needs to be defined. It needs to be described carefully. It needs to, if you're a Christian, it needs to be defined biblically. We need to see, does this definition of love that we have, does it work Genesis through Revelation? It has to work through all 66 books or there's something broken in our definition. Are you with me so far? If you say, this is who Oliver Twist is, your definition of Oliver Twist has to, his character has to make sense through everything that Dickens wrote, first chapter to last chapter. Does it make sense? It's true of every book. Your definition has to be continually submitted to the author. The author in the next chapter could say, no, Frodo wasn't strong enough to go up the mountain. Sam had to carry him. The author has the right to change the definition of the character. I'm preaching right now. Okay? So with 66 books of God speaking, God is the author, he gets to tell us what love is, okay? And right now, the cultural definition of love is basically warm fuzzies, and sometimes it's, you agree with everything I think and do, which I don't even agree with myself all the time. Maybe you've got greater fortitude of philosophy than I have. I change my mind sometimes. I, I, I go, man, Greg's, Greg, you thought that two years ago. You're an idiot. I'm not that consistent. Maybe you are. There is no love in the universe, in the cosmos, unless the God who created us gives us the free will to choose him or to choose away from him. And this is tragic. It is good, it is necessary, and it is tragic. Not tragic that God allows human beings to choose or not choose him. It's tragic that some of us, many of us, choose away from him and say, no, I'm not interested. That's the tragedy. Not what God brought into the picture, but what we brought in. Here's, here's why love has to work this way. I make you, and I make you just like a robot without a will, you're just programmed. Just ones and zeros is all you are. That's all you are. And in the programming, I make sure that you love me and adore me and honor me and obey me. Does that feel like love to you guys? Like it's just a basic gut check. It just doesn't seem right. Something's off. 
Now, what if I don't program you and you have a will? You're a human being. Your own thoughts, your own desires, your own passions, your own dreams. And you choose willingly to be in relationship with me. You spend time with me. Guys, this works in any relationship. An uncle and his nephew, a mother and daughter, your friend. I know you love me because you choose into relationship over and over again. We spend time together. We talk together. You serve me in one way or the other. You're a great listener, or you're trying to be. Relationship exists from free will, not from robots being programmed and said, you will hang out. I'm living it right now, man. I've got a four-year-old and a two-year-old I swear would kill each other if it weren't for parental intervention. <laughs> you will be nice to each other. I'm just gonna confess, that particular parenting method is not working. <laughs> I, I'm trying. You will not hit your brother. Yes, I saw what he stole from you, but... Abigail, my two-year-old, she is so bold of personality that I'm convinced she's going to be an evangelist when she grows up. It's just that she assaults everybody, so I think she'll do prison ministry from the inside, <laughs> not visiting. I pray that doesn't happen, but you never know. God's creative. So when we ask ourselves, can robots love, we kind of just intuitively know well, no, there's got to be free choice. We, this is where love comes from. If God, and he did, creates beings in his image, not animals, he never says animals are made in his image, not angels, angels are not made in his image either. We are creative, we are emotional, we are stewards, we were handed the earth to steward it in his delegated authority. And he, What? He gives moral commands and a moral choice. He puts the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. If you're a Christian and you're even halfway honest, you'll admit you have read that before and thought, God, what were you thinking? Why did you put that tree there? If you didn't put that tree there, then we couldn't have sinned and messed all this up. And God says, if you don't get to choose me, then we don't love each other. I mean, I love you no matter what, but you're that tree, guys, this is brutal. The tree of the knowledge of evil in the garden is the invitation for a human being to love God. It's an invitation. It's the only invitation in the entire garden. Here's your chance of your own free will to obey me out of trust because I've only ever been good. God doesn't just know about love, he is love. So when we second guess his thinking about how he orders his universe, it's really kind of crazy. A God who is love created perfection, put it in a perfect place, and even the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was absolutely necessary for that perfection. That tree allows us to choose God freely. It has to be there. What's tragic is that we walk up 
to the tree and have a conversation with a snake. And we start listening to him. And thousands of years later, we're still killing each other, destroying our world, and disrespecting, manipulating, stealing from. The tragedy is not what God has initiated. The tragedy is what we have initiated. God does not sin, nor does he cause anyone to sin. Scripture tells us that. Two sub-points. This rejection is tragic, but must not discourage the church because, number one, God knows how to run his universe. As your first blank, God knows how to run his universe. And still, many people choose to worship Jesus. Many people choose to worship Jesus. Let's not be too busy second-guessing how God runs his universe as if people don't respond in the affirmative and love Jesus Christ and are in relationship with him for eternity. He knows what he's doing. He's building his church. How many of you guys know if you were in charge of building the church, you'd mess it up? Okay? We'd all mess it up over and over again. Second, in your notes, the appearance of King Jesus forces you to be either disturbed or overjoyed. Disturbed or overjoyed. You see in your notes there, I put verse 3 and verse 10. What's one of the most tragic, it's maybe the second most, first or second most tragic uh, lines in our text today is that the Magi show up and say, where's the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. Verse 3, and all of Jerusalem was overjoyed, happy, let Jerusalem receive her king. What's it say? The capital of the people of God. The church of all churches, the biggest church in town with the giant steeple, with all of the holiest pastors, with the most letters behind their name, the center of all religion, God shows up. And the center of religion says, no thanks. Jesus wasn't born in Syria where they've got their own gods and you'd expect him to be rejected. He was not born in Egypt. He was not born in Rome. He was born just outside Jerusalem. The epicenter of Judaism is five miles away. And the king only sees him as a threat and plans to kill him. And the scribes that accurately interpreted scripture and said, oh, this is where Jesus is going to be born? Could they get off their derriere and walk five miles to go worship him? Guys, if Jesus came today for the first time, if he had come today for the very first time, it's not the pastors who go to worship him. The pastors stay at home comfortable. It is strippers and IRS agents. <laughs> Everybody who's never been to church, who thinks that they're not welcome at church, God would never love me, pimps run to Christ and pastors don't. That's Matthew 2. Actually, it's the whole Bible. God loves the outsider. 
The religious elite don't. The Pharisees are wanting to wash their hands of people like Zacchaeus. And Jesus laughs. Are you kidding me? I'm going to Zacchaeus' house today. Our God loves the lowly. He loves the outsider. He loves the person who's never been to church. He loves the person who's broken all 11 of the Ten Commandments. That's who God loves. Jesus actually said, hey, um, Messiah didn't come for people who think they have their act together. He came for the sick. That's who I came for. Disturbed and overjoyed are the two human choices we have when Jesus appears. Who was overjoyed in verse 10? You guys have it in front of you and I don't. Who was overjoyed in verse 10? We know Jerusalem was disturbed. Presumably Herod was disturbed. Yeah. These wise men go and they find him and they are overjoyed. You would be too if you just walked a thousand miles on foot. Or if they are wealthy enough, maybe they got to ride an animal. But a thousand miles is a thousand miles, right? They are overjoyed. They did not come on some archaeological dig like Indiana Jones. They said what they believed. They believed the newborn king of the Jews was born because of what they saw. And they weren't coming on a diplomatic mission to give him some gifts so that, you know, uh, Israel will be friends with their home country. They say flat out they came to worship. Worship is, the the word worship shows up three times in this text. It's very clear what they're here to do. They believe, something in them believes the king of the Jews is deity, worthy of worship, not just greasing his palms so he's nice to us later and he's in charge. He's worthy of worship from their perspective. So I want to imagine all of humanity shows up at an art museum at the exact same time. You guys have probably felt this before, whether you saw artwork in, whether you saw the red rabbit out in uh, the airport, (laughs) or whether you went to the Crocker, All of humanity walks through the door and there's this big mural immediately when you walk in. And everybody, in a quarter of a second, has an initial impression of, ew, that's gross, modern art has really lost its way. Or, oh my gosh, that is striking. That is beautiful. There is an initial impression in the human heart of finding Messiah to be a joke. Paul says it this way. The the Greeks think think it's all foolishness. The Jews think it's blasphemy. Talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It does not matter where you come from, what culture you come from. If you're a human being, we see Jesus for the very first time, and unless the Holy Spirit mercifully steps in, we find him disgusting. We see him on his cross and we go, ew, that's disgusting. Nails in his hands, blood everywhere. We can't hardly watch The Passion of the Christ. We're just, I had a, a classmate at Simpson when The Passion of the Christ came out who was so bothered. Oh, Mel Gibson went over the top and made that you know, so violent and blah, blah, blah. And Mel Gibson had to send the Passion of the Christ to the rating agencies five times just to get it down to an R-rated film. They weren't going to give him an R rating. It was so violent. And with three historians working on the project to get crucifixion done right, 
if the spirit of the living God does not step in, you're gonna see the crucified Christ and all you're gonna see is blood and a mess and tears and screaming. If the Holy Spirit of the living God does step in, you know what you're gonna see? You're gonna see that same savior looking to his side saying, you're gonna be with me today in paradise. Romans 1, I know you guys don't like that chapter, nobody does, but keep going back to it. We do not love God until the Spirit does something. And he allows us to walk into that museum the second time and we see the artwork and go, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. I thought Jesus was just a jerk telling me what to do and and I see it totally differently now. He's here because he loves me and he wants to wash away my sin and restore my relationship to the Father. I didn't see it before, but I I see it differently now. So those are our options. And Jesus said, if you want further study, Matthew 10, listen, I didn't come to unite, I came to divide. Father against son, mother against daughter. Okay. Um, Disturbed and overjoyed are our two options when we see the king. Third, and this is brutal, but this is important because I'm warning some of you. You guys know warning is a command in the Bible for pastors and prophets? We are to warn? Okay. I just say, I don't want to get an angry email. He was so mean trying to get you out of hell, that's all. Did he say that out loud? You don't need to do anything to reject Jesus as king. Simply stay put. There's your blank. You don't need to do anything to reject Jesus as king. Simply stay put. Back to, and this is what the religious elite did. The scribes stayed where they were in Jerusalem, comfortable, well-paid. They had their position secured by their relationship to Herod. Herod stayed put. The Sanhedrin stayed put. They were already in a place, and this is what Romans 1 tells us. We are already in rebellion against our creator. Just stay put. Some of us think we need to go out and find a pentagram and bow down with some incense and worship demons in order to reject God. And that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you're already rejecting God. You could be a really nice person rejecting God. That's what the Pharisees were. Really good people, generous to those around them, went to church all the time, memorized Bible verses. They just were self-righteous. They thought, I'm awesome. I'm right with God because of the good things that I do. And they're far from God. When you say, I'm good enough on my own, you are rejecting the cross of Jesus Christ wholesale. I don't need God to die for me. I'm good enough on my own. It's the rejection of Jesus. And this is what should warn us and scare us if you're a regular in a church. Um, I've told the story before, but it's been a while. And a church I served at about, that was about seven or eight years ago. Um, in 1991 one of the deacons came forward at the end of the prayer and committed his life to Christ after serving as a deacon for 34 years. Huh? Did you, see, did you hear the word after? <laughs> Served as a deacon for 34 years, and then he is saved by the Lord Jesus. Okay. Because behavior doesn't save. Our rejection of God, we all think that it looks like 
prostitution and drug addiction and pornography addiction and use and abuse of women and disregarding of authority. It can look like those things, but boy, could we put on a smile and warm our brown chair every week and still rebel against God. Isn't that Saul of Tarsus? Wasn't Saul of Tarsus really religious? Wasn't he a really good guy? He was in church every week. And it didn't do him any good. This is the warning to all of us. We're reading in Matthew 2, God shows up to save us, and the most religious amongst us stayed put. Guys, that's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. And how beautiful, and this is what we're going to emphasize more next week. Today's sermon is rejected as king. Next week is received as king. How exciting that these religious outsiders, these Zoroastrians, these shepherds who are unclean ceremonially, so they're never at the temple, they never get to pray. It is these outsiders who receive him. That's the exciting part next week. Oh, what a, how tragic one side of the coin, how beautiful the other side of the coin. But this is what Jesus has come to do. He's come to show himself as Savior, as King over us, as Lord over the universe. And then we get to decide why. Because love cannot exist if we don't have the free will to choose. God is love. He is not going to force anybody to worship him. It is this kind of heart-wrenching thing. I want you to know Jesus. I want you to be in right relationship with the Father. But this is up to you. Do you find him beautiful? Do you, when you see the face of Jesus, do you find yourself running back to sell everything you have so you can purchase the field and then get the treasure that's buried in the field? That's how Jesus described it. That crazy behavior of your Christian friend, they got saved and then their whole world got flipped upside down because their values got flipped upside down. That's somebody who's encountered the risen Christ. That's somebody who's celebrating Christmas maybe for the first time. They've heard Linus on ABC every December their entire life, but this year they heard it. And then your friend's acting crazy and you're like, oh no, they got religion. Just wait. Oh, just wait, because the love of God transforms it. Like saying you're a Christian and not changing is like if I ran in here and said, hey guys, I'm sorry, I'm late to church, I got hit by a truck this morning. Oh my gosh, did you have your seatbelt? No, 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 no. I was walking across the street and a big rig ran me over at 70 miles an hour. That's why I'm late to church today. Greg, if you'd been hit by a big rig at 70 miles per hour, I think you would... Look different. (laughs) And this happens every single day if we have not been transformed by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ but keep trying to call ourselves a Christian. If your friend got saved and their whole world's upside down, it's because they actually got hit by the truck. They got hit by the truck of mercy and they are now merciful to others. They got hit by the truck of love, and now they love others. They got hit by the truck of forgiveness, and now they're forgiving people you never thought they'd forgive. Yes, your Christian friend is crazy. I'm here to confirm it. They're crazy. Their definition of mercy has been turned upside down. Their definition of justice has been turned upside down. Everything was changed because they actually got hit by the best truck in the universe, the love of Jesus Christ. Not just saying they got hit by it. 
All right? Okay, I'm gonna pray for us. Lord Jesus, I ask for your help personally, and I'm, I'm assuming everybody else in the room would join me on this. I, please help me to trust you in running your universe. It is ridiculous, Lord, how uh, arrogant my heart is. I want to control everything around me. Um, God, we see in the book of Acts and elsewhere your gospel going out. 20 centuries later, we believe, those of us who are Christians, that we're a part of it, and we want to see your gospel go out from us as individuals and as a church family. Um, but man, do we turn around in those moments and we doubt you? Like, God, are, are you doing this right? How come my mom hasn't responded? I've been praying for her for 25 years. God, when are you gonna do something? God, help us to trust you. Even, Lord, when you hand free will to human beings, God, help us to trust you. God, I ask for this church family, everyone in this room that loves Jesus and many of us more in the Spanish service and teaching the kiddos right now, help us um, I don't even remember what I was gonna say, Lord. I just, we need you desperately. God, I want an evangelistic culture in my life and in this church because you'd have to be a jerk to find water in a desert and tell no one. God, we need courage like you infused into Joshua and into the apostles. We need a boldness. We need a joy-filled sense of urgency. Father, we confess every sin that gets between us and a healthy evangelistic life. Help us to surrender joyfully and wholeheartedly to your Holy Spirit's leadership and control over us. And God, I ask for every saint in this church that we'd be able to look into our own lives, people at work, family members, neighbors, maybe our grandkids. Help us to look at our whole life through the lens of Matthew 2, where we can see the greatest gift has shown up and people are starting to make their decisions. But God, we've got... We've got people around us who haven't, don't even know that baby Jesus is here. They can think he's some cultural image or some piece of history that isn't relevant to their lives. God, help us to serve those who are in our spheres of influence. Help us to present the greatest Christmas gift ever given. And then by your mercy, God, allow our friends and family members to receive him, not reject him. God, I ask, if I ask nothing else, I ask for you to birth passion in our hearts that we would love the lost even half as much as you do. 
God, I believe we would be transformed and our city would be transformed if you would say yes to that prayer request. Please grow our love so that it manifests in real action. We ask this in the name of our merciful, saving King, Jesus Christ. God's people said,